This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. It is such an honor to have as my guest today, Sebastian Younger. Now, you may have first heard of him through the book, A Perfect Storm, or the movie adaptation starring George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, uh, or through his numerous other books or his reporting for Vanity Fair from conflict zones around the world. Uh, His latest novel is Freedom and details a 400-mile journey that he took on foot along railroad tracks in the United States. Uh, Just a fantastic read. And as you can tell, I had a lot of notes for this interview. I got to read well, one at the beginning, and then I snuck in another one at the end there. But uh, there was so much I wanted to talk to him about. I had four pages of notes and questions. I think we got through maybe one of them. Just a fascinating guy. I've been a huge admirer for the longest time. And because I didn't get to read this during the conversation, I'm going to read it uh, quickly right now to set the tone what is about to come. And remember, if you like the conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or watch it on YouTube, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm going to start with this. The word freedom comes from freedom, which means beloved in medieval German. And it is thought to reflect the idea that only people in one's immediate group were considered worthy of having rights or protection. Outsiders, on the other hand, could be tortured, enslaved, or killed at will. This was true throughout the world and for most of human history, and neither law nor religion nor common decency held otherwise. The corollary was that if the enemy was, going, was not going to show mercy, you might as well fight to the death. Freedom as a supreme value was born of the fact that there were really no alternatives worth considering. And the result was that the freest people were often the most warlike. Amazing. And he's also said, we can understand how valuable freedom is by understanding the lengths people have gone to to preserve it. Without further ado, Sebastian Younger. Sebastian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This is incredible. I've been a, uh, a huge admirer for quite some time. Uh, of course, I became aware of you, I think, the way a lot of people did uh, through Perfect Storm. Yeah. And uh, just a, in, incredible. My mom is a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. So I was always very in tune with that world. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that was an amazing, obviously an incredible book. I think it spent uh, a year in hardback on the New York Times list and then two years in paperback yeah, or something like that, that something like that yeah yeah that's right amazing yeah. absolutely thank incredible thank but you. uh for this latest i'm going to tr- try my best to uh stay on freedom there's so much i want to talk to you about yeah. but uh i know we're limited on time and i want to be respectful of that and uh so i want to try to keep it to freedom which was absolutely incredible i love that you uh you read it yourself uh on the uh-huh. audio version uh i read it and listened to it um but i love that you're exploring this theme especially with all you've done in life up to this point to explore the theme of freedom, especially right now, uh, is very poignant. And uh, I want to start with a quote from this book for those who haven't read it. And uh, you write, for most of human history, freedom had to be at least suffered for, if not died for. And that raised its value to something almost sacred. The idea that we can enjoy the benefits of society while owing nothing in return is literally infantile. Only children owe nothing. To be fair, it's hard to feel loyalty to a society that is so huge it hardly even knows we're here, and yet makes sure we are completely dependent on it. So I've also heard you say freedom means freedom from oppression, not freedom from obligation. Um, so how did you, did you come to that conclusion through this 400-mile journey that forms the framework for freedom? Or is that something you've always known? Was it an innate understanding from your upbringing, or did you come to it through life experience at home and abroad? Yeah, well, thank you for that quote and for reading that quote and, and for the question. Um, so just so that your listeners sort of know, know the terrain, basically part of the book of Freedom is an account of a trek that I took 
along the railroad lines, which are these sort of swaths of no man's land that crisscross the country. And, and I went with two or three buddies. We'd all been in a lot of combat. And we went from D.C. to Philadelphia. And then we turned west and headed for Pittsburgh. And uh, as I say in the book, over 400 miles, most nights we were the only people who knew where we were. We were sleeping under bridges and abandoned buildings, uh, cooking our dinner over fires, drinking out of creeks. Uh, the cops were looking for us with a helicopter at one point. Of course, it's illegal to walk on railroad lines because it's private property. Um, and so over the course of that, really, I mean, I just we just did that to do it to encounter the country, encounter each other, um, reintegrate in some ways back into civilian life. And it recreated some of the feelings of combat just in terms of having to be like really tuned up to your environment. Um, we had to know, we had to be able to feel when trains were coming because the engineers would call you in and sometimes they'd be on us so fast that we wouldn't have time to hide if we waited to just hear them. So we had to, I don't even know how to explain it. We just would intuit them coming. They're huge and fast and they'd come barreling down on us and we would kind of know it. Anyway, that, that sort of state of uh, sensitivity reminded me of combat, reminded us all of combat and the unity of us, like that we needed each other out there. It was a rough environment and sometimes dangerous and always hard. And uh, so later, years later, I was contemplating a, writing a book about freedom. I was contemplating the idea of freedom and I realized that that was the freest I'd ever been in some ways out there with these guys. And it wouldn't have worked without them. It, we were in, totally interdependent and we were very free from outside control. We did what we wanted when we wanted to and very few people knew we were doing it because uh, we were kind of creeping along through the edge of American society. But we were totally dependent on each other for the tasks that were needed to be done for us to, to survive out there. And that meant that we had great autonomy as a group, but very little personal autonomy within the group. We had to, we, we all needed each other. We, you, we had to collect firewood. We had to get clean water. We had, you know, a million things, right? And then, so what I realized as I was researching freedom is that for tens of thousands of years, humans as groups have been aut often autonomous from, from predatory larger groups or from animals or what have you. But that doesn't mean that the individual is autonomous within the group. Like that is kind of a silly idea. It's anti, it's not human, right? I mean, we're social primates and we get our, our protection. Um, we get our ability to survive because we, we live in groups. And immediately that means that really in sort of biological and social terms, the idea of the lone person being completely autonomous and owing nothing to anyone else is a basically a Western fantasy. And, um, and I wanted to sort of tackle that in my book, Freedom, because I think we all owe a lot to our community, to our family, to our community, to our town, and to our country. Um, not necessarily a, an obligation that has to be discharged in, in uniform, but we owe something. And I wanted to try to understand what that was. And did you, uh, so you had this experience in combat and for years and years, multiple conflict zones, Sierra Leone, uh, Liberia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, uh, multiple different conflict zones around the world. And then you found some of those same, those feelings and emotions and tasks uh, at the tactical level uh, that here in this country, as you moved along these railroad lines, uh, and in, in a little bit safer than some of the places yeah. that you've been in the past, yeah. but there's a lot of danger out there as well. You were shot at, trains are yeah. going by, the police are looking for you, like you said. Um, so there is danger involved. And you met a cast of characters along the way and you roll that into this, this story. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was fascinating. But so for those that aren't familiar with some of your, your past work, um, did, how did, did you always know that you were going to, were drawn to conflict zones? Were you drawn to trying to understand the nature of, interpersonal violence, community-on-community uh, -community violence, state-on-state -state violence. Um, were you drawn to that from an earlier age, or was that something that you developed? Well, I think you studied anthropology in college. Yeah. Was that something that you developed through that study, or how did that come about? Well, I, you know, I was, I think it all... <laughs> I think I was sort of typical eight-year-old, 10-year-old boy, like me and the neighborhood kids. This is back when children played outside, of course, in the, <laughs> in the late 60s. Yeah. You know, we, what did we play? We played war, right? I mean, we literally, and I was old enough that when we played war, 
often we were recreating the battles of World War II. Like, and some kids had to be the Germans, and some kids got to be the Americans, yeah. right? And all of our dad, not my dad, but most of our, our our dads, you know, had had fought in World War II. And so we, so you know, I think a lot of young boys are sort of fascinated by war. And I grew up in a, you know, a completely you know protected, safe little town. And so I think I was curious about. It's opposite, which of course is is war. But I should also say that my father was a refugee from two wars. He grew up in Spain, and his family left when the fascists took took over in 1936. They went to France, and then they left again. His dad was Jewish. They left again when the Germans came in a few years later, and he came to this country. And he came to this country because, as he said to me later, um, that he knew that it would always be democratic. It would fascism would never come here. It would always be a free country, and. You know, the tricky thing is that fascists often um, explain their power grab as a form of freedom. And so the word gets very tricky. And one of the things I wanted, you know, the word is easily misused. And one of the things I wanted to do was sort of explain more precisely what that word means so that it, it it's maybe it's a little bit more impervious to misuse because it's so powerful. And once someone drags the word freedom into the conversation, I feel like they expect everyone to back off with their questions and their demands. Like, hey, I'm fighting for my freedom, so don't ask any questions. And that, you know, that's just not true. And 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 so that was what I, you know, later wanted to bring to the bring to the conversation. But to answer your question, um, you know, but my late 20s, I was working as a as a high climber for tree companies, which was a pretty dangerous job. I got hurt doing it. And I and I started to think about dangerous work. Maybe I could write about that. That led to my first book, The Perfect Storm, but it also led to me going to Sarajevo in 1993, which was besieged by essentially fascist forces. The, the Bosnian Serb army was shelling and, and, and shooting at, uh, bombarding uh, a completely besieged civilian population. Um, they killed or wounded one-fifth of the, the people in that city. Uh, ex- extraordinary. And, and uh, uh, children, everybody. And um, so I was there... Uh, off and on for about six months in 93, 94. That was my first experience with war. And eventually, much later, you know, I was in Afghanistan in 1996 uh, when the Taliban were taking over. I was with Ahmad Shah Massoud in 2000 as his forces fought al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Then after 9-11, I was with his forces when they retook Kabul. Um, and eventually, I, I had the amazing experience of being with the U.S. forces. I grew up during Vietnam. I never, I, It never occurred to me I would ever cover a war that had American forces in it. It just, I didn't see that happening. And indeed it did. And that, you know, in a lot of ways is, uh, I mean, I've loved every aspect of my career as a journalist, but I got to say my experience with American forces was really kind of life-changing. I mean, almost the sort of pinnacle of my, of my professional career, I think in 07, 08, I was in the Korangal Valley of Eastern Afghanistan. And uh, I'm going to go back to that in a second. I have so many questions about yeah. that, but yeah. I was going to try to keep it to freedom. And there are, there are parallels, yeah. uh, of course. Of course. Yeah, um, yeah, no. But uh, when that, that first, how did you get that first assignment going to Bosnia, Kosovo? How, how did that transpire? Like, how does one just all of a sudden end up there? Uh, and then yeah. was your expectation of what it was like, was it anything close to your actual experience on the ground? Yeah, no, good question. So uh, um, I had gone out west. I was interested in forest fire. And uh, this is in 1992. And I'd gone out west and I'd followed some fire crews. And I basically just said, I don't have a press pass. I'm nobody. I would just, I just want to write about you. I just want to be with you guys. You know, and they gave me, it was, there were women on the cruise too, of course, but they, they, they just, they said, yeah, okay, there's a helicopter. It's going out to the, to the, to the fire line, just dump board. And, and essentially, so I wrote an article about that, that was accepted by a, a, a magazine in the early nineties called men's journal. And, um, a great editor there, Steve Byers, uh, sort of espoused my cause and he thought I was a decent writer and so I had this idea of going to Bosnia. I was like, Steve, man, just write me a letter. Just say that I'm working for you. And I wasn't. I was freelancer. <laughs> I was just pretend. Just it don't cost you anything. Just write a letter. And I, if I get hurt or killed over there, I promise my mom's not going to come after you guys. <laughs> like, So over in Bosnia, they had no idea what Men's Journal wasn't a news organization. Like, But they had no idea. So they gave me a press pass. And with that press pass, I got on a UN flight into Sarajevo. And the, the experience, I mean... You know, it was a very, um, it wasn't what I pictured of sort of, you know, World War II combat, right? I mean, it was like, it was very sluggish. And there were moments of high intensity combat, but then it settled into this sort of static front line. And there was the occasional sort of bump and thud of artillery, crack of a rifle shot, a little bit of machine gun fire. But mostly it was a city full of civilians who couldn't wash 
very often because there was no water. The electricity was, you know, there was no power. Um, they were growing vegetables in the median strips of the roads. You know, they were living. I mean, it, mostly it was life slowed down. It was like very difficult, almost stone age sort of pace of survival for most people. And, and, um, Mostly what I saw about, you know, from war, mostly it's like, it smells of burning garbage. It smells of people that can't wash enough. You know, it smell, you know, it's like, mostly it's children who are scared and unhappy and parents who are terrified something's going to happen to the children. Like, that's mostly what war is. And um, there is the sharp end of the sort of spear, which is the actual combatants fighting, which is what we see in all the movies. But like an iceberg, like that's the tip of the iceberg. And below that tip is this sort of vast mass of human suffering and human boredom, a huge amount of boredom, because everything in a society stops when it's at war like that. Um, and that's mostly what I came away with is just this sort of waste of human potential and human life, um, and not necessarily from bullets, but just because everything stops. Children go to school, don't go to school. I mean, it's really tragic and so on every, every single level. And so you arguably spent more time in Afghanistan than most Americans uh, prior to September 11th. Um, is, was that part of uh, coming back, Bosnia, Kosovo? You're seeing, you're looking at, now you're interested in continuing to report in conflict zones. Um, people know you have that experience now. Is this when when Vanity Fair enters the picture? When do you start yeah. writing for them and actually going forward as, uh, as someone without just a letter from uh, a, a right. guy at Men's Journal? Well, suddenly, you know, suddenly I had some credibility. I mean, I did, you know, I was doing very minor, low-level stuff as a journalist in Sarajevo, like, you know, radio reports and stuff like that. But then, and but then my my first book, The Perfect Storm, came out, and that bumped my profile. And, um, and I just kept going back. You know, I didn't want to write another book. I mean, it probably would have been a bestseller, but I was like, no, I want to. I really want to be a war reporter. You know, and they're not well paid, and they're not. They're sort of anonymous. Um, really in terms of the public, like, but, uh, you know, I really, that, it just intrigued me and um, it felt extremely meaningful to be doing something like that. And so I just kept going back to war zones and, and, but with assignments now, Vanity Fair started giving me assignments. So now I had a, like quite a high pro uh, profile with which to talk about these, uh, you know, quote, forgotten wars. Um, I'd always wanted to go to Afghanistan and, um, I saw photos of Afghanistan. My dad grew up in Europe, as I said, and we lived in Paris when I was a kid. I remember we were walking past a bookshop in Paris and there was this amazing book of photos from Afghanistan in the seventies, like unbelievable photos of these nomads and in the Wakhan corridor, like these Mongol looking people. I just extraordinary. And I'm like, I've got to go. I was 12. I was like, I got to go to this country one day. And eventually I got my chance in 1996, just as the Taliban were taking over. Um, we were shot at by Taliban gunners on the outskirts of Kabul in July of 1996. It's amazing. I remember uh, growing up, some of my parents' friends after college had backpacked through Europe and then yeah. they'd gone to Kabul. They'd gone yeah, through, to right. Afghanistan. It was a very popular right. destination in the, I'd say, late 60s, early 70s. Um, yeah, it was on it was on the hippie trail, right? That's I it. mean, it was, uh, all, you know, to India and, and, and Thailand or whatever, like it was on the hippie trail. It was an amazing place. And it's, you know, as you know, you know, it's physically, geographically, it's just gorgeous. It's, so it's stunning. It's like the American West. It's got everything, you know, and rivers and mountains and deserts and, and the, the Afghan people, I just love the Afghan people. And, um, you know, their hospitality, I mean, beyond hospitality, like we were getting shelled once by the Taliban in 2000, we were on a forward position and it's a very bad situation. We had no, we had no counter batteries, right? I mean, we were just getting shelled with Katusha rockets and there was not, we had nothing on our side to shoot back. And so we just had to curl up in a, in a ball until like they ran out of Katusha's, right? <laughs> you know, that's not a good feeling. You know, there was no air power. There was nothing. This is way before Americans were involved. I was with Masood. And um, I remember these fighters were trying to get around me to like, because I was a guest of their nation and of their leader. And they were trying to get around me to protect me, you know, from the, from the explosions. Like, and I mean, we lost a horse in that, right? I mean, it was a bad situation. And their courage and their concern about me was so profound, it was almost embarrassing. I was like, no, I, I'll take my own shrapnel, thank you. Like, I appreciate it. But, it, you know, it really was a stunning example of national pride and, and hospitality. It's such a beautiful country. And I was, that's one of the questions that I was going to ask was about uh, that beauty juxtaposed with that violence. And uh, as a reporter, not someone who is uh, who is on a side actually fighting, but reporting on that conflict, 
um, and someone who is is very active and who spent a lot of time outdoors and obviously thinks about freedom. What uh, when you juxtapose the beauty of that land and a mountain people that have yeah. uh, have repelled invaders for centuries? Most recently, yeah. obviously, us Soviet Union, the British. Um, what uh, that juxtaposition when you reflect on that beauty and that violence? Um, what what stands out to you? Is it that juxtaposition, or does one or the other uh, kind of sway things for you when you look back on those times in Afghanistan? You know, I, I, most most of the world is gorgeous in its own way. You know, and um, and you know we've created urban environments that I would say aren't exactly gorgeous, but the people who live there it's their home, right? And so really the most profound beauty there is, is one's home and one's people. And that's what people are fighting for. And that's sort of why I wrote the book, Freedom. I mean, freedom, people will die to protect their community. People will die, obviously, to protect their children. And people will die for freedom. And I'm not talking about, you know, modern day America where that word is so loaded and used in so many ways. I'm talking about for the past 100,000 years, like the ability to be self-defining, to not be under the unfair or cruel control of a greater power is something that people are like, throughout history, are like, you know what? I might die doing this, but it's better than living unfree. And so to me, it just begs a, a, a book about it. And what I would say about the Afghans is, yeah, they fought the Brits. They, you know, they fought the Taliban. I mean, the Northern Alliance fought the Taliban brutally, right? I mean, they were outnumbered three to one. And the whole Northeast part of the country, because of Massoud's brilliance, they managed to keep free. Um, the Soviets and the U.S. You know, I personally, I think the U.S. was there to try to bring some democratic norms to an unruly violent country. And, I, and for their sake, I wish it had worked. Um, but you can sort of get the Taliban perspective, like, like we don't want the U.S. in here. We want to do, you know, this is our place. This is not your place. Get out of here, right? So on a very basic level, and I loathe the Taliban because they are anti-human rights. They are, in a lot of ways, anti-freedom. But I totally understand from their perspective, they were fighting for their own version of freedom. And, um, and when people do that, um, they can be unbelievably brave. Like, I mean, we're like, I don't care if I die, but this is not happening. I'm not going to let this happen on my watch. And, and, you, and so one of, the, one of the things I wanted to do in my book is look at the commonalities between underdog groups that were successful in preserving their autonomy in the face of a greater power. Um, and, you know, basically the book's divided into three sections, run, fight, and think. The first thing people do is run away. They're very mobile. The Apache remained wild and uncontrolled for 300 years after the sedentary Pueblo tribes were rolled up by the Spanish in the late 1500s. The Apache got another three centuries out of it because they were just so they were poor, but they were very mobile. But if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. And interestingly for humans, a smaller individual can defeat a larger individual that's unique to humans. Um, and a smaller group can defeat a larger group, uh, also unique to humans. And even in chimpanzees, this is not true. And so, you know, I looked at these instances where, say, the Montenegrins in the early 1600s, they were invaded by the Ottoman Empire, outnumbered 12 to 1, right? And without artillery, without cavalry, and they just handed them their hat, right? I mean, they destroyed the Ottomans over and over again. You know, so there's this unique human ability to defeat a larger aggressor. And then finally, you know, if you can't outfight them, you're going to have to outthink them. And that's where you get into some of the social movements like the uh, labor reform, labor law reform, the labor movement a uh, hundred years ago, um, the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter. I mean, all any number of things that the Easter rising in Ireland a hundred years ago and against the Brits, um, groups that look very, very disempowered, like they have no chance against the, the, the national government and its army. In fact, over and over again, they 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 can succeed, and I so I examine, you know, wh what's the mechanism for that? How does that exactly work? No, and I love how you incorporate all these lessons from history into your journey uh, in such a a poignant fashion, and it, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, and as part of that, as part of these it, insurgencies and uh, and uh, resistance movements, you talk about the importance of women adding a uh, a, a moral authority to those movements and without females involved, how it's a lot maybe easier to crush a movement um, because it maybe doesn't have that moral authority that females bring to that fight. Um, 
And uh, did you come to that uh, realization throughout your time in combat zones, or did you reflect on that in the writing of this book and the research for this book? Well, you know, there's a, you know, obviously I'm not talking about like domestic violence and private violence. Like I'm talking about the way society um, values the, the life of women and the life of men. And over and over again, what you see is, you know, for example, in the Titanic, it's really interesting. Someone did an analysis of the casualties on the Titanic. You know, this was, you know, hundred plus years ago. And it was an extremely patriarchal society that was dominated by very, very wealthy men, right, who have had enormous privileges, right? But what happened on the Titanic? Even the wealthiest men in the first-class cabins died at a higher rate than women in steerage. I mean, you know, the women in steerage in 19, what was it, 1912 for the Titanic, something like that. Um, you know, these are extremely poor people that are paying almost nothing for a transatlantic uh, uh, passage. I mean, the wealthy men on the Titanic even died at higher rates than female crew on the Titanic. So there's this understanding for some pretty good biological reasons that men are basically reproductively expendable. You can kill 90% of them. The society will rejuvenate itself, you know, within a generation. But you lose too many women and, and the society will never recover. And, we, and, and so the, the so we also, you know, we all sort of know that. And so what happens in many societies, and particularly I think in Western societies with mass media and all this stuff, is that you have a mob of men on the street, no matter how righteous their demands, um, their, no matter how righteous the protest, it does look like a potentially violent mob of guys on the street, <laughs> right? The, the optics are horrible. Right. And, and, but as soon as you have women in there, uh, you know, in Argentina and Chile, that what they started doing during, during the awful dictatorships of the 1970s and 80s, dictatorships which we backed, by the way, the United States backed, um, is they started putting uh, mothers on the streets, mothers carrying children. And the cops just didn't know what to do. And these are brutal regimes, right? But as soon as you do that, it, it gives the dictator, the oppressor, the authorities, an un, un, almost unsolvable problem. Um, they really don't want to be unleashing mass deadly violence on groups of women. It just looks too hard. The optics, optics are horrible. And so what one cop said, I love this quote, in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, uh, there were the labor, the, the, um, the textile mill strikes. And, you know, these are mostly like four Syrians and Lebanese and Turks and you know, Italians, like all kinds of foreign people who were working the mills. They had very, very, they had no rights at all in this country, right? A lot of them weren't even citizens. And, but they were being brutally exploited in these mills and they were protesting as they should have. And so what they started doing was putting women on the front line of these protests and these national, these 18 year olds in the Massachusetts National Guard with their bayonets fixed were like, what do we do with this? What, like, we can't do this. Uh -huh. And this one cop said, you know, police captain said, you know, he said, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And that tipped the balance. And there's also this other issue of sort of like women are very good at lateral uh, social networks that are very hard for the authorities to penetrate. Males or do a great thing also, which is they have vertical hierarchies. But if you decapitate the head of a vertical, you know, if you take out the leader of a vertical male hierarchy, you've sort of incapacitated it. You cannot do that with women. There's no way to decapitate it because it's lateral. It's egalitarian. It's not a hierarchical. And so that also can be used you know, that can be endless fun when used against, you know, the, author <laughs> the authoritarian regime. Interesting. And then some of these police officers, well, not some, these police officers, these, uh, these uh, military personnel from these dictatorships, they have, a lot of them have sisters, they have mothers, they have friends. I mean, it's, it, it has that whole different dynamic. It shifts the dynamic of, uh, yep. of the conflict quite considerably. Um, and it's a, uh, it, it's a tool that can definitely be, uh, be used to the advantage of the, uh, of the insurgent, no doubt, no doubt about it. Or, to the resistance movement. Um, yeah. And going back to um, uh, Masood for, for a second, um, to be able to have spent time with him on the ground. I mean, I'm fascinated by him, his history, what he did uh, against the Soviet Union, uh, then the Taliban, and what he was perhaps poised to do after September 11th had he not been assassinated on September 9th. Um, I was the, the intelligence representative for my SEAL platoon. So I had studied all this. And plus I was just a, a student of history and, uh, I've been a reader my entire life and very few people had heard of him, even in military circles, uh, yeah. before September 11th. And a lot still haven't afterward, don't really understand the significance of his assassination. Um, what do you think 
that uh, in, in having spent time on the ground there, being a student of history yourself, a uh, student of anthropology yourself, what, what did, we, did we miss? Our senior level military leaders, our senior level politicians uh, in moving into Afghanistan and still being there today. Um, there is so much history. There's so, there so many lessons, recent history, that we could yeah. have drawn lessons from and we could have applied to our decision-making process as we went into Afghanistan after right. 2001. Um, so what, what did we miss? And right. in looking at that, at that conflict now over these last 20 years, um, what, can, what lessons can we take from that and hopefully apply as wisdom going forward? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a great question. And it's an important one. Um, so everyone, just about everyone in the world understood our moral and strategic prerogative in going to Afghanistan after 9-11. I mean, even Iran was like, yeah, we get it. You guys <laughs> got to go after Al Qaeda. Afghanistan's a neighbor of ours. We don't, we don't like it, but we get it. Right. So, um, there, we didn't have a sort of P, a P, PR fight beforehand to sort of justify the war. Um, and, uh, so the problem was it went too easily, right? I mean, the Taliban were very unpopular, um, by the time we got there, um, they were allowed in. I mean, when I was there in 1996, what I was told was, look, we don't like the Taliban, but they promise, they promised to clean up corruption in this country. Corruption is destroying this country and they will, they're a, they're a harsh extremist regime, but they will stop corruption. And so we're going to let them in. And, and, and people told me, told me that over and over again. Um, so this was our mistake. So that with the Taliban were toppled very easily. They were a paper tiger. Um, I think we didn't follow up that well with Al Qaeda up in the mountains and the Tora Bora mountains. I think we had them encircled and somehow we'd let them get away. You know, I don't know quite what that decision was. I'm not an expert on that at all, but certainly after the Taliban folded, uh, we took Kandahar, we sort of sealed up the country. And the next thing we did was leave, right? We left 15,000 soldiers there and some NATO forces um, and some coalition forces and basically moved on to Iraq. And the Afghans, you know, they know, they know what happened to the Kurds in Iraq in 1991, right? The Kurds allied with us. And then as soon as the war was over, we left and they got, they got massacred. Of course they know about this, right? So they were looking at America, like you're leaving 15,000 soldiers here. Like there's 40,000 cops in New York city alone, right? You're, that's all you're leaving here. This isn't going to work. So not only was it a not, a not enough men and resources on the ground to get the job done, but it, it, it was very hard for Afghans to sort of buy into the big project, right? Because they knew eventually this day would come where we're pulling out completely and the Taliban are going to take Kabul. And the way I think we tried to compensate for our light footprint, which I think was due to the fact that President Bush was headed to, to Iraq and had been headed there all along, which I think was not a good decision. But the way we tried to compensate by that was dumping a huge amount of money into Afghanistan. Like basically you can fight warlords or you can buy them off. But what that did was impart this, per, the perfectly wrong lesson, which was, I mean, that money was just feeding corruption. It was feeding the tumor of corruption in Afghanistan. And so what we could have done with a hundred thousand soldiers early on, um, we were trying to do with billions of dollars uh, and just buying off everybody. And it fed the original problem that got the Taliban a foothold in that country in the first place in the mid nineties. And it was just like, strategically, it was like the exact wrong idea. And, uh, I, you know, I, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people, good people, Afghans, Americans have died as a result of that strategic error. Um, and I hate to think where it's headed now. It's heartbreaking to me. It is heartbreaking, um, especially knowing, I mean, as you do, you've seen people lose their lives on the battlefield, lose limbs on the battlefield. Um, and you have to ask that question, you know, uh, you know, for what did they sacrifice? There's all sorts of, uh, I mean, it's a tough, tough thing to think about. But in watching Restrepo, and if, if anyone listening has not watched this film, this documentary, for sure, watch it. It is, uh, it has to be one of the, I mean, using the word best is such a, I don't like to use that, that term, but it is, um, is the most authentic portrayal, I mean portrayal because it, it's just, it's video that you've taken. It's a couple questions here and there, but it's, it's so raw, so real, um, showing the confusion of modern combat and probably combat from the beginning of time. Yeah. Um, that, that, that confusion that sets in, where are these bullets coming from? Who are we fighting? Why are we fighting from them? Oh, well, my buddy to my right and left, but it just shows that 
the yeah. confusion and chaos of combat in a way that I've never seen in another uh, documentary and that I've only felt in in real life when bullets start coming in. And you're not like sure where they're coming from or what's happening, um, and yeah. it's it's quite uh, it's quite chaotic. But for for me, some of the most heartbreaking parts of Restrepo are watching the captain go in and talking to the village elders in the in the shuras and having what is it, Cap, uh, Colonel Austin come in clean shaven from another, you know, from, from, from a fob somewhere else and land and, you know, lay down the law for a couple sentences and then leave again. And I saw that so often, uh, during my time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and my, one of my takeaways, uh, is that one of the, one of the most important things that one can do at a strategic level really is understand the nature of the conflict, uh, about in which you're engaged or about to engage forces because that's your responsibility and watching those interactions was so difficult one because i we know how it ends now um but even at the time it's like we put these people in an untenable situation um and and so it's it's so difficult to watch that um and so in, in going back and looking at those those interactions how do you feel about those interactions so not the the combat that is is shot in that confusion but the quiet moments the sitting down and putting this you know, 20 some year old kid in this position yeah. dealing with these village elders who know they're just going to wait us out. Essentially. Yeah. That's all they have to do is wait us out. They know we're not going to be there. As you said, they they've learned the lessons of the past. We don't necessarily do that as well as they do. Yeah. I mean, the Afghans, you know, it's an ancient agrarian society and, you know, time is a, you know, is, is I mean, honestly, it's a little different for them. You know, I, mean, they'll th- I remember I, I, when I was with Masood, um, no, maybe it was in 2001. At any rate, I was in the Panjshir Valley way back, and I, we climbed up this mountain and uh, uh, just to look around. And we found this old guy who was um, out there on his own, and, and there was this newly planted tree on this hilltop. And we asked him about it, and he said, "Oh, well, it's such a beautiful view here, and it was a gorgeous view." He says, "It's just a beautiful view here, and but there's no tr- there's no shade, so I just planted this, and it was a sapling. It was like six feet tall." And this guy's like 80, right? And and uh, and he said, I planted this tree so we could have some shade when we look out at the view. And I said, well, that's going to take a while. <laughs> like, and, and he looked at me like I was nuts. He was like, it's not for me. It's for my grandchildren. As if I, like, that was the most obvious thing in the world. We don't think like that. Oh. Americans don't think like that, right? I mean, they think in four-year election cycles. They think in 15-month deployments. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so there's an advantage to that immediacy as well. I mean, everything has a pro and a con, right? I mean, there's disadvantages to thinking 50 years in advance. You know, I mean, definitely there's disadvantages as well. But I was very, there was a sort of a nobility, a kind of quiet dignity to that, that um, what really, really struck me. And I think the country needs a a little bit of that. Yeah. And in your time on the ground in Afghanistan in particular, but in the other places around the world you've been as well, I think one of those lessons that uh, that I've read about here, I heard you talk about somewhere else, is that violence begets violence. And if we understand that as kind of our foundation and our base when we're talking about conflict, um, what does that understanding lead to in terms of, of future decisions as it pertains to conflict resolution? If that's our base, what do we, what, what, how do we apply that to future decisions? Yeah, I mean, so I haven't, you know, obviously, I, I haven't studied military strategy. I'm not in the military, all that. So these, I'm saying these things as strictly as an observer on the outside. And, and but my, you know, my sense is that we, the United States has this incredible tool, which is air power and artillery. And it's so tempting to use because it's so effective. Oh, they're over there on that mountainside. We'll just get rid of the mountainside. You know, we'll kill, <laughs> we'll kill all 12 guys, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's such an obvious solution, but, you know, as I say in freedom, the um, o- o- relying on air power to solve a complex, essentially complex social and political problem like uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, relying on air power is almost a sign that you're losing. You know what I mean? It's almost a sort of indicator that if that's your solution, um, A, it doesn't, it's not fine-grained enough to actually solve the real tangible problem within the society of corruption and all that stuff, all the drivers that feed the war. Um, but also the the costs are enormous. We can't, as a nation, maintain that kind of air power for decades and decades and decades. It just costs too damn much, right? But also the human costs are, are obscene, right? And 
you know, we killed, I, I mean, we killed an awful lot of people, right? An awful lot of civilians, an awful lot of children. I've seen them, you know, wives, mothers of people, grandparents, you know, and it, it, Afghans, you know, they're, they're very long suffering and, you, you know, like their ability to absorb tragedy and just keep living and even make accommodations for the people that did that to them is absolutely extraordinary. But I got, you know, we're whatever the raw, you understand as a human, like if you, if you come in with that kind of power and wipe out a school by accident, and now there's 20 families who lost their little children, where do you even start fixing that? You know? And so I, you know, I would almost say like, once we're thinking about using air power on a massive scale to fix a problem, we, we have to rethink what we're, what we're doing, like, because it's almost certainly a predictor of, of future loss. Oh, sure. I mean, look at, uh, at uh, Great Britain in World War II, the pounding they took from the Germans, yeah. what we did in, in Vietnam. I mean, there's, there's historical, yeah. there, there's things we, that's what gets me is that there are things we can go back and study in very recent history. And we can take those lessons and apply them going forward. And we seem yeah. to not do that time and time again, which is, is frustrating for a, for a reader and just a, uh, right. you know, someone I, well, I hope that uses common sense more often than not. Um, and I think I forget who it was, but, uh, they said the most important element of a, a combat leader is having some common sense. Um, yeah. And that's, yep. uh, and that's yep. so absolutely. True. <laughs> yeah. And, and sort of understanding, you know, what they call the, I, I love this phrase, the human terrain, you know, like sort of understanding that, like, look, we're talking about people here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, you know, ultimately we're fighting war in a, in a, in a social context. And, um, if you don't understand what's motivating both the enemy and your at least temporary allies, if you don't really understand that and attend to their basic needs and concerns, you are never going to win this fight, yeah. right? I mean, and and that's I, I feel like that that completely went past the sort of military command, at least in the early days after after nine eleven. Yeah, and then bringing it back to to, to freedom, I I know I went down the Afghanistan uh, rabbit yeah. hole a little bit. I I, I knew no that was going to be a, a, a danger, but uh, so in going back to that that initial passage that I read earlier, as it pertains to to freedom, um, so how do people in a society as safe as ours maintain that freedom? Uh, how do you maintain that freedom and autonomy when you're a citizen of a country that has monopoly on use of force? Uh, and seemingly continues to acquire more and more power, whether intentional or unintentional, yeah. and uh, making its citizens more dependent upon it. Yeah. How do we maintain that uh, that freedom? Yeah, well, I mean, so just first of all, it just has to be pointed out that we live in a mass industrial society, high technology society, and we all, if you just look around yourself in your room and, you know, we all are completely dependent on a massive supply chain to pr- give us the goods and services that we depend on for our survival. We are no longer creeping through the underbrush with a bow and arrow, bringing down our own food, right? And, and you know, we humanity is long past the point where we could all be doing that. So so I'm just sort of saying that to 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 point out that the we feel taken care of. And so it 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 feels like we don't need to contribute to the public good because there's just sort of this mechanized process that's sort of just taking care of everything. Right, and for most of human history, um, w- you know what our lives were things that we personally had to sort of like attend to, and and now all of a sudden society does, and so it's easy to, to feel you are dependent on it. So where do we get our autonomy? We don't have a physical autonomy, and even people that sort of protest, like the U.S. government, like the guys that showed up in the Michigan State House to protest, I can't remember what, right, like. I mean, whatever you feel about those guys, let's let's acknowledge that freedom was not an op- one of the options on their menu, right? I mean, they're sh- they're driving in trucks that they didn't make, you know, that they bought with money they got from working eight, you know, ten hours a day at some job on gasoline that was pumped for by somebody else on, you know, with eating food, bullets, guns, the works, all of it came from society, right? Overseen by the government that sort of make you know regulates all this enough so that it keeps functioning fairly well. And so let's just give up the fantasy of, oh, we're all totally autonomous and, and, and not part of the, or this government and this country. It's total nonsense, right? But why wouldn't you want to be part of this, this whole enterprise? I don't care if you're a Democrat or, or a Republican. There's people in Washington you're going to hate, and there's people in Washington you're going to like. And, and likewise, around, you know, why wouldn't you want to be part of this? And so my, you know, my sort of pitch to people is that basically you're free in a modern society like this, 
your freedom comes from respecting democratic norms, from peaceful transfer of power, from, uh, from the fact that you have recourse through the courts, uh, through the ballot box to make this country go in a direction that you think is better. And, and, and as soon as you're sort of resorting to violence, you're actually doing the opposite of a, a, a path towards freedom. You're, you're, you're on a path towards fascism. And, and that's, that's the opposite of everything we should be standing for. And, you know, finally, let me just sort of end with this. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, the opportunity to feel like you're participating in the country. Um, I mean, some people join the military and then that hopefully feels that way. But if you're a little older like me, uh, or if you just don't want to carry a gun to serve the country, there's how can you do it? Like, what are there ways in a modern society like this where the average person can participate, feel like they belong, like in mundane ways, right? Like, and I came up with three, and I and, and if I may, I'd love to just sort of list them quickly. They're symbolic, right? But symbolism can be very effective, very, very important. I mean, any religious ritual is basically a demonstration in the power of symbolism. So uh, I'm not, I'm an atheist, I'm not religious, but I understand, you know, symbolism is a powerful tool. So how do we do that? How do we symbolize our relationship to America um, as individuals? And there's three ways. So I almost died last year. I had a, a aneurysm in my pancreatic artery that ruptured without warning. It was asymptomatic. It was a congenital deformity. At 50, age 58, it ruptured. And basically I bled out into my own abdomen. I lost 90% of my blood, nine zero, right? Um, I, I mean, almost no one survives this. And by miracle, I survived partly because I got 10 units of blood through my neck, um, through my carotid, uh, and- uh, Didn't they um, ask you if that was okay? Did they say hey, something they, like, they, is it okay if we put this in or something yeah, like that while you're on the table? Like, what are you supposed yeah, to say they, there? Like, <laughs> well, no, well, hold you know, off I for a sec. I didn't know I was dying, right? I mean, I, I, I didn't know what was going on. My abdomen hurt a lot and I, you know, I was going blind and I was dizzy and I couldn't stand up and I was in a tripped out, right? I didn't know I was dying. I think often dying people don't know because they're not thinking very clearly. I um, mean, I had a hemoglobin count of 1.2, right? I mean, I mean, you can't even find that Googling it, right? It's so low, it's almost unheard of. But I was conscious and the doctor said, do I have permission to cut your neck open and put a line in here? I don't know if the carotid, one of the big vessels in there. He said, do I have permission to do that? And I was like, you mean in case there's an emergency? And he said, this, this is the emergency. Yeah, right. And then he started working on me and then a big dark pit opened up underneath me and I started getting pulled down into it. And my, fa my dead father appeared and started consoling me. And the last thing I remember saying to the doctor was, you got to hurry, you're losing me right now. They saved my life with 10 units of blood delivered, uh, donated by 10 people I'll never meet. The wonderful thing about blood is that it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't understand any of the stupid distinctions we as humans make. It doesn't understand race or income or class or belief. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge anything except we all need blood and it can come from any one of our blood type, right? It's a beautiful thing. So now I'm like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna donate blood as often as I possibly can. It makes you part of the web, right? Part of us. And, and one day you're gonna be me in that ER. I promise you, eventually, hopefully very late in your life, you'll be lying there and you're gonna have someone else's blood in your veins. It's an extraordinary thing. But the next thing is vote. You have to vote. I don't care how long you got to stand in line to do it. It means that the country needs you and you need the country. And if that relationship breaks down, we're lost. Um, it, the, um, we should have 100% uh, voting in this country. I mean, everybody should vote. Like it's just, just be like, that's just what happens. It would be a better country. And outcomes will be complicated for both parties, but I don't care about the parties. I care about this country, you know? And, you know, and finally, I serve on jury duty. Um, I know it's a pain in the neck. Like, it can be pretty interesting, but the fact is, it is the main thing that keeps us from a kind of judicial tyranny. It means that one person, not a judge, not a police chief, not a president, no one person can determine the fate of another person. It takes 12 peers to come to a wise decision. And so you do those three things, I promise you, you will feel like you're part of this amazing experiment called America. I love that. And I love that a lot of, that if people do those things that you just talked about, um, if they just feel like they're surviving, um, which is a horrible thing to do. A Vietnam vet told me a long time ago, he said, the point isn't to survive. 
It's to prevail. And for those that are just surviving, if they do those three things that you just talked about, yeah. that because of that contribution, they feel will feel like they're moving the ball forward. They are contributing, yeah. and they're hence prevailing, not just surviving uh, and moving society forward in a positive direction. All those yeah. things you talked about are positive, and, uh, and and so I just love that. I love that you talk about that. Uh, and in terms of voting, the way I talk about it with my kids or with with friends or whatever it is, it's and when I was in a platoon, I talked about voting in terms of you, we owe it to those people who from the inception of this country up until today gave up everything so that we could have yeah. the right to yeah. do this and determine right. our future. Uh, so for them, for their families, for everything they sacrificed, for you to have the options and opportunities that you do, take the time to vote. Um, yeah. So important. So all those things. And uh, are those the three things that obviously you're going to pass along to your children, but was there anything else from that experience, from being on that table, that near-death experience, probably can't get much closer than, than you did, um, yeah. that you'll be passing on to your kids? And what do you wish for them moving forward in terms of the options and opportunities that you've had in your life? Um, and do you worry about them not having that going forward if you're looking at the direction that we're headed? I mean, I, you know, I, I mean... I almost left my two little girls fatherless and that's just tormenting to me. And I came back from that, from that table, I miraculously survived. And now, you know, I mean, oh, it's so trite to say it, but, um, there is almost no experience of being alive that I any longer think is a burden. Nothing. I don't care how, um, unpleasant or, it is or what kind of drudgery it is, I, whatever. I mean, trying to find a parking space, I don't care, give it to me. What, I mean, I'm alive and I'm here for my, my, for my daughters and my wife. And, um, and all of it is just the most incredible piece of good luck. And it was good luck the whole damn time and I didn't realize it. Right now I realize it because I almost died. But we are lucky, we are so lucky to be alive. <laughs> like it's indescribable. And if you can sort of live with that appreciation, with that consciousness, not only will you, I think, experience life in a better way, but you also look at other people, like people you think are your enemies, people you think that are hurting America or hurting, I don't know what. You're like, we have all such weird ideas of each other. And, and on some level, you'd be like, wow, you're alive too, brother. Isn't that amazing? Now let's, let's make this work. You know what I mean? Let's, let's get this party on the, this, this, this show on the road. We got to make this work. We're all alive. It's extraordinary. You know, and I just feel like, whether it's the, I don't know, there's so many extremist views in this country. And if I, we could go to those people and just say, Will you chill out? We are all so damn lucky. <laughs> so like, lucky. just stop, just stop for a second. And let's, let's, let's co collaborate here and stop with the villainizing and the, and the contempt. Amazing. No, thank you so much. So I had four pages of notes and questions for you. Uh, I think I got through maybe, maybe one, um, but yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. And I really wanted to read the a passage that you wrote in in here, but I'm going to leave it for the, for the reader because I want people to read the entire book, uh, listen to it. Um, and there was, it's the passage uh, from Ireland, um, where is, is Milan, is that how you say his name yeah, in front of the fire? Michael Mallon, yeah. Uh, in front of that firing squad, the last uh, letter that he writes to his wife, his way to the, the prison where he's going to be executed, yeah. where he sees yeah. his front yard and his dog, uh, his last thoughts. And then that passage that you write after it is so powerful. It's one of the most powerful paragraphs that I've read in quite some time. Um, and uh, so I encourage you, I was going to read it, but I want to encourage everyone to get the book, uh, read it for yourself, spend some time with it. It's an emotional read. So it's probably good that I'm not going to yeah. That I'm not going right. to read it on uh, on the air here, so I want to encourage everyone to to read that for themselves, uh, and then share this book with your with your family, with your friends. Um, and uh, in being respectful of your time, I do want to ask you one one last question here um, about uh, Geronimo's last words. Um, and he said, "I should have fought until I was the last man left alive." And I was going to ask what we can learn from that final chapter in Geronimo's life. Well, he was the he was the head of the last band of sort of quote renegade Apaches that were had avoided um, confinement on the reservation system, and you know he they remained free until 1886, I think it was, and he finally gave up. Um, he was on the run in Mexico, and it was it was basically a massive sort of dragnet for him, and and he had a, most of his group of 27, 28 people was you know women and children, you know, and he just he. he 
I think he just had eight or nine warriors with him. And so he finally, he finally gave up. And I, and I, you know, he, he lived the next years on the reservation, I think in probably a quite a dehumanized situation. And I think, um, you know, he, he drank apparently. And, um, you know, he, he, what happened to him is what Western civilization often does to free people. It degrades them and destroys them. And that's how he died. And I think he probably understood like better to, better to die than, than to let that happen. And, and, um, you know, that's where, you know, freedom and human dignity, they're very tightly intertwined and the, the welfare of our children, of our people, it's all intertwined together. And we must live lives, even if I don't care if you're working 12 hours a day in a factory or whatever. I mean, some people got to do, you know, they got to do tough things that don't feel like freedom, but there is a sort of basic level of human dignity that we can all insist on. And, and one of, you know, one of those things I think is to insist on, to insist on, on moral and courageous political leadership, which we do not have, and we don't have it from either side. And it's really, um, breaks my heart to see it. Oh, I did have that. Uh, since, since you did bring it up here at the last, <laughs> at the last second, I will read this one sentence then. Yes. Uh, yes, please. you said leaders who aren't willing to make sacrifices, aren't leaders. They're opportunists and opportunists rarely have the common good in mind. They're easy to spot though. Opportunists lie reflexively, blame others for failures and are unapologetic cowards. I mean, that describes, I think, well, it's so hard to say that, but the majority of politicians that we see out there uh, each and every day spouting whatever they're spouting on the news, yeah. which gives me a lot to work with as a, uh, a writer of fiction. I can draw. <laughs> they give me a lot to work with, which is fan, which is fantastic. But on the leadership front, uh, yeah. Uh, are you hopeful for, uh, as far when you look at leadership, po political, military, corporate, um, is it drawing the right kind of people? Well, you know, I think military leadership, uh, for the most part, is enormously uh, um, courageous, and uh, I mean, at least in my in my experience of it, um, uh, in Afghanistan, I mean, all of the officers that I met were, you know, if, if you had said to them, "Would you be willing to risk your life on the front line with these soldiers in the next battle?" I think every single one of them would be like, oh, absolutely. It drives me crazy that I'm stuck behind the desk yep. in front of a computer yep. while these guys are getting shot at, right? So sometimes people say, what kind of leaders do we deserve? And my quick answer is we deserve leaders who will die for us, like literally die for us, because that has been the human standard for moral leadership for 50,000 years. And now all of a sudden, it's not. And um, I don't quite know what to do about that other than to insist on some kind of sacrifice by our political leaders, at the very least that they give up the possibility of enormous financial gain because of their position of power. And, uh, you know, Democrats are just as bad as Republicans at this. Um, I, I really do wonder, for example, why Mitch McConnell, how, how Mitch McConnell came to have tens of millions of dollars. I don't understand the math, right? And if that if that's like moral self-sacrificing altruistic leadership, then Jesus, we're we're screwed, yeah. right? So so the I mean I feel like the country, the citizenry, there was just a report on ProPublica which has had a lot of exposure in the last few days about the tax rate paid by, you know, multi-billionaires, like the top 25 richest. And it's like 1%, right? The game is so completely rigged that the very wealthiest people have sort of legal loopholes allow them to not contribute to the public good. Why aren't our politicians not plugging those loopholes? You know, because they're in, in bed with them, right? I mean, the whole thing. So, you know, at, at some point, the American public on the left and the right, I think will realize that they have a, a common cause in returning um, morality and fairness to the way our legislatures do business. But right now, it's it looks completely corrupt. I mean, I, not quite Afghanistan in the 90s, but mm -hmm. I feel like we're, we're sort of creeping in that direction. Uh, it is disheartening. And uh, I was going to ask you all about the Gini coefficient, but I won't. I'm going to tell people <laughs> right here, freedom, find out about the Gini co coefficient in here. It, uh, every single sentence in here is, uh, is, is just so powerful. So thank you for writing this. Uh, once again, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It means, uh, means the world to me that you would take the time to do this. Uh, and, and it's in closing, uh, you dedicated this book to your family and you wrote to my beloved family who taught me the true meaning of freedom. Um, so what did you mean by that? After all the time that you, you've spent in conflict zones and you've, you've, uh, taken those lessons and, and looked through that yeah. lens at our country, uh, and then explored freedom through an entire book, um, where you're experiencing it 
on the road yeah. and you're bringing in historical examples, uh, weaving those into the story. Um, what did you mean by your family teaching you the true meaning of freedom? Um, yeah, don't get me started on my cat. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what I meant was, I mean, there's many different kinds of freedom. There's financial freedom, uh, to be emancipated from financial worries. There's physical, physical freedom, sexual freedom. There's all kinds of philosophical freedom. But there's also the profound freedom of loving other people more than you love yourself. And to me, that was, I don't think I was ready for it when I was 25 or whatever. I think I got a sort of glimpse of it in a very different context when this platoon in combat, where I watched that be part of everyone's experience in that group is this amazing concern for everybody else and, and often a, a selfless disregard for one's own fate. Um, uh, but then finally, I got to experience it as a, as a father. I, I came to fatherhood late. I'm 59. I got a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, one but it's the most profound experience of freedom I've ever had. And I treasure it. And it's the main, the main thing that makes me want to keep living is, is, is that feeling with my wife and my children. And, um, if I were wrenched, had been wrenched away from it last summer, I, I mean, I just, I don't even have, I, I can't even bear to think about it. Wow. Well, uh, sure. Glad you made it. Uh, thank you for sharing your gift with the world through your, your work, both in journalism and in these books. And, uh, and thank you for taking the time today. It, uh, like I said, it means, uh, means the world to me. So thank you for uh, spending the time with me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, good luck to you with everything. Thank you so much. Take care. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast. Because I was just talking to Sebastian Younger about freedom, the title of his new book, I figured it would be appropriate to talk about tomahawks, about axes, because of what they mean to freedom, what they mean to me personally, what they've meant to warriors over the millennia. So I didn't get to read a couple of these passages during the podcast because uh, I wanted to be respectful of Sebastian's time. But as it pertains to freedom and blades, I figured I'd read a little something right here before I talk about the, uh, the Winkler tomahawks on the desk in front of me right here. He writes, pertaining to the frontier, there was nothing there but you, the land and God. And if you were still alive after the harvest, you could send for your family and make a go of it. Maybe you could convince some other families to come with you. The risks were appalling and the hardships unspeakable, but no government official would ever tell you what to do again. A powerful paragraph there. And then this. Life in populated areas farther east was brutally rigid. The most common civil offense was contempt for authority. And many settlers simply wanted to escape the scrutiny of church and state. Freedom on the frontier was a kind of mirage, though. The closer you got, the more danger you were in, and the more you needed your neighbors for survival, which just meant obeying their rules rather than the government's. Freedom and safety seemed to exist on a continuum where the more you had of one, the less you had of the other. Amazing. And he also talks in here about frontier life. You needed a rifle, a tomahawk, and a scalping knife. So that is a great segue into Winkler Tomahawks. If you followed me for a while, you know that I'm a fan. And of course, if you read my novels, you know that my protagonist, Navy SEAL sniper James Reese uses these with brutal efficiency, but these have been part of the Warriors arsenal for quite some time. This is full size right here, R&D Hawk, R&D Axe from Daniel Winkler at Winkler Knives. So check those out. You just might see something like this in Chris Pratt's hands as uh, the terminal list is brought Amazon Prime. So be on the lookout for that. And I just got these in. I've wanted these for the longest time and it's been a busy few years. So the compact version. And will this be making it into a future novel? If you were a betting person, I think that'd be a safe bet. But uh, check that out. So it's a little bit smaller right here than the full size, obviously. So full size compact right here. It's just a solid, look at that. That thing is awesome. And also something I've wanted for quite some time, the subcompact. This thing, love it. So 
That's the subcom. This is the compact, and that's the subcompact. Once again, Winkler knives. Check them out. These are the R and D Hawks, all three sizes. And uh, if you don't have one, fix that. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. A huge thank you to Sebastian Younger for coming on and spending some time uh, discussing his latest book, his history, his time in conflict zones around the world. Uh, just a fascinating guy. I could have talked to him all day, but I kept my eye on the clock because I want to be respectful of his time in the hopes that maybe we'll get to talk again in the future. Um, if you are, well, you should definitely check out SebastianYounger.com. That can take you to his Twitter, his Facebook, his Instagram, and it's uh, the website's incredible. So check out all his books from uh, A Perfect Storm, uh, Tribe, War, Fire, his latest Freedom that we discussed today. And you have links to his articles that uh, primarily from Vanity Fair, but others as well from that website. Um, so check that out for sure. Um, he is a recipient of the Peabody Award, the National Magazine Award, and Restrepo was nominated for an Academy Award. Um, and I really wanted to ask him what it was like to be on the red carpet um, for a film, a documentary that uh, was just was so powerful, so visceral, so violent about the confusion of combat and uh, what it was like to juxtapose getting an award for that in Los Angeles, um, knowing there were still guys downrange in the fight. Um, so I'll ask him about that next time. It's an interesting dynamic to, uh, to explore from a psychological perspective. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for joining me. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Sign up on the YouTube channel, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, and help like, beat those big tech algorithms by giving that five-star review. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you again to Sebastian Younger. Um, means the world to me that you would come on this podcast and spend some time talking about your latest book. Until the next time, take care. Be safe out there. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm -hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.